Welcome to American Indian and Alaska Native Living, a program designed to educate and inspire listeners throughout Indian country. American Indian and Alaska Native Living is hosted by Dr. David DeRose, a board-certified specialist in both internal medicine and preventive medicine. Dr. DeRose has a wide range of experience with Native health issues, and he is here today to help you learn more about your health. Here is Dr. DeRose. Welcome to American Indian and Alaska Native Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. Today we're speaking about a topic that is one that is uh, challenging people, regardless of what their demographic backgrounds are. It's something that seems to uh, fill our minds. Whether we want it to fill our minds or not, we're bombarded by information about trauma. And to help us in that dialogue is Ingrid Slickers. Ingrid, it is so great to have you with us today. It's so good to be here. I'm glad we were able to find a time to talk. Ingrid, you have been doing a lot of really great work with uh, trauma education. You and I had the privilege of meeting with a, a national group that had come together dealing with various health concerns. It was my first opportunity to learn about you and learn about your work. So I'm sorry that I'm not more informed or more on the cutting edge of the topic because I know you've published research, you're heading up a center. Tell us just a little bit about who you are for those that, that don't know you. So first and foremost, I'm a social worker. Currently, yes, I'm a university educator here at Andrews University uh, teaching in the School of Social Work, but in my heart, I'm a social worker. And what that means, David, is that uh, I have been out in the field um, working with people for a really long time, and I feel like that is exactly where God wanted me to be because he made that really clear to me even at a young age when you realize there's so many people around us, including ourselves, that, that are hurting. And so what does that mean? What that means is that early in my career, I became a therapist and started working with children and families and came to the understanding that the root cause of many of the things that were going on were, were trauma. And how do we understand what trauma is and can do to us? Um, and then that's where later I had the privilege and honor of, of working in other countries or even with refugees and even here locally of helping. How do we understand it so that we can care for each other and heal together? You know, one of the things I love about your work and your background, Ingrid, is just that it is so broad. A lot of times, you know, we work in a fairly isolated setting and we think, we understand trauma because we're familiar with things that are happening in our community. But it seems there's something when you, you work in other cultures, it sometimes causes us to look at things differently, even in our own environment. So share with us a little bit about your story of some of your cross-cultural work. So something that became really clear in my work early on, because I'm, I'm bilingual, my family's from Argentina. Um, so early on in my career, I was referred children that were uh, Spanish speakers uh, to do counseling with. And a few of the families were families that, um, you know, had different uh, Latino cultures. And they didn't quite understand the traditional way that we do therapy, right? So we're talking about mental health services that maybe here in the U.S. we're so used to. And I came to the understanding that as families were referred to me for an hour session of counseling, that, that, that's not enough. That's not, you know, holistic, all-encompassing help that we needed to do education which then would cross cultures because hurting 
is in every culture, in every tongue, in every people. Um, and the impact of trauma on the brain crosses every culture. And so one of the first, as we developed, so not necessarily one of the first, as we developed some practical things that then families could do at home that would help them to understand how to work with their kids or even themselves. Uh, one of the first cross-cultural experiences is we went to a refugee camp in Thailand. Um, we went with uh, ASAP Ministries, and part of the plan there was when you're working in a refugee camp, you can't say to people, oh, go get therapy. That, hmm. That's not that's not realistic. One, it's not within their cultural norm, and, and two, it's not accessible. They're barely getting enough food and water. And so being able to talk about practical things of understanding our brains as much as possible um, and what things we can naturally do to support healing became really, really powerful. And to see that cross cultures where we were able to say, we may not look at the world the same, but we all are human. We've all had hurts. We all have brains and we all need relationships. This is uh, exciting to me, Ingrid, because this is so relevant today. There's so much discussion about trauma. So many people that I see as a physician have been traumatized in various ways. I might be seeing them for high blood pressure, diabetes, or arthritis. But as we get to know each other and we talk about their stories, there's often deep hurts that underlie many of the, well, maybe adverse lifestyle choices that they've adopted and other things. So let's try to make this practical and go to that refugee camp in our minds in Thailand and tell us what are some practical things that you would say to to our listeners today that you've learned in that context that you could translate to folks today? Some practical lessons. Do any come immediately to mind? Absolutely. So we know that trauma impacts us. I think we there's no doubt. I think we all understand that. And we even have brain scans now where we can see what it does to the brain. I think for many years, um, you know, we knew, for example, when soldiers came back from the war that there were, there were wounds, but we couldn't see them on the outside. We knew they were on the inside, but we couldn't really see them. I think brain imaging has helped us to see how it how trauma actually physically impacts our brain and our bodies. So if anybody's wanting to do more research, you can look at the adverse childhood experiences study and understand further how it impacts our bodies and our health. But going back to our brain, I think one of the important things that we do a lot of talking about cross-culturally is to remember that the brain is an organ. A lot of times we just think of the brain as the mind and not the brain, right? So thinking about the brain as an organ. So we do a lot of talking about what are things you can do. Sometimes we can't control things that happen to us, but what are things I can do that are good for my brain as an organ? Can I drink more water, right? Can I, can I make sure I'm getting fresh air or exercise? And again, making this applicable to the situation that one is in, so if we were in a refugee camp, you know, making sure that whatever we're recommending, it's accessible to them. Water was something that was accessible to them, you know, and encouraging them to drink more water. So some practical things like that, right, that are things that I can do. But then we would talk to them about healing through the senses. 
And science is showing us how amazing our brains are. And this is what's amazing to us here at the Trauma Ed Center at Andrews is uh, the intersection between our faith and science, right? Where, Mm -hmm. for example, we know that there's healing to be had through our senses. So some of the things that we talk about is making sure, um, for example, and we did this overseas, the, the power in touch, in healthy, safe touch um, that comes within healthy relationships and encouraging, for example, um, this was a culture that wasn't always open to, to hugging, for example. And so we talked about the importance of hugging their children, hugging each other, and the impact that that can have on the body and on the brain as far as releasing those positive um, things that we need for healing and for health. So we talked about that. We talked about the power of singing. So we know some research has been done into the vagus nerve, right, which is the longest nerve in our body that helps us move from the sympathetic nervous system, which is our fight, flight, freeze, the stress response that so many of us across the world are in all the time, that we're not able to get into our rest, restore, rest, digest nervous system, which is the parasympathetic nervous system. As you look at practical ways, one of them is singing, singing loudly. Now, this is not a connection I've ever heard. I mean, I talk a lot, Ingrid, and some of the things that I do about sympathetic and parasympathetic, but you got my mind going. I mean, of course, the vagus nerve, as I recall, is involved with the diaphragm, uh, among other things. And so is that part of what's going on here? Yes. So we talk about, you know, breathing, but we talk about loud singing, which can actually cause that to get stimulated. So it's practical things that we can encourage people to do, and we love to encourage them to do that. So Peter Levine has done some work into that. We love to encourage these natural things. Well, I think I need some of the neuroanatomists with us. You know, I'm thinking, well, phrenic nerve is involved there, too, with the diaphragm, vagus. Well, I'm going to have to get out my physiology and anatomy books again. But this is fascinating. I've not really heard this connection. I know it may be second nature to someone in your work, but these traditional, uh, whether it's uh, singing at a, at a powwow, whether it's, uh, someone might say, more chanting in other cultures, singing, all of these things that use the vocal organs really have a powerful effect on toning down that fight-or-flight response. Am I hearing that correctly? Yes, you are. And the beauty, so now we take it one step further, of doing it within community. Mm. So if you're doing it with others, it's even more powerful. And so what better thing to encourage us to do? Now we know COVID has affected much of that, which is so sad, but can we find some safe ways to still do things like that? This is very fascinating. And the other part, you know, that you mentioned earlier about lifestyle I think there's some people listening in that might be wired a little bit more like the host who's thinking, well, you know, is there really, you know, empiric evidence that drinking more water or uh, exercising or eating better actually helps people deal with trauma? So I see you nodding your head. I have the advantage of a a video connection as we're doing the interview here, uh, even though it's virtual. So my listeners uh, are not getting those cues. So help us to understand just 
how established these connections are with lifestyle and how well we deal with traumatic life events. So again, back to the brain being an organ, right? So if we think of the brain being an organ, and, and again, if we were all in person, I'd pull out pictures of the brain as an organ, right? Because we forget just like I need to treat my kidneys with love and care and my liver and my lungs, right? A lot of focus has been on our lungs and how do we keep them healthy? Just like I need to care for all those other organs in my body, the brain is an organ, right? How do I care for that organ in ways that I can control? It's got to have water. It's got to have appropriate nutrition. It's got to have sleep, appropriate sleep. We need enough vitamin D. So research is showing that a lack of vitamin D can cause anxiety. We're really seeing this in, in adolescence. And again, people sometimes think, well, it's as simple as getting outside more. And yes, agreed, because we also know that studies show the impact of being outside in the sunshine, fresh air and nature. But on the other hand, you're a physician, you understand that we may need some supplements at times. Mm -hmm. So again, going back to now, when I see kids in my office and therapy, many times I'm quick to say when I'm seeing anxiety, depression, yes, I understand there's trauma, but first and foremost, what are we doing for your brain? Can we get mm. a physical exam? Can we check, for example, your vitamin D levels, your iron levels? Because there are things that we can help your brain then be your mind and process if the organ is it as its best health as, as possible, right? Wow, this is uh, tremendous stuff. For those of you just uh, joining us, I'm talking with Ingrid Slickers. Ingrid heads up the uh, Trauma Education Center uh, at Andrews University in Berrien Springs, Michigan. She is a licensed social worker and a uh, educator, researcher. She's sharing with us insights into this very important topic of dealing with trauma, things that can fortify you for things that might be coming in the future or things that you're dealing with already. We've got a lot more to deal with in this program, and we're going to be going right to Indian countries, some practical experiences that Ingrid and her team have had there. You don't want to miss that. Coming up right after this, I'm Dr. DeRose. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please reach out to us on the web at A-I-A-N-L dot O-R-G. That stands for American Indian Alaska Native Living. Again, A-I-A-N-L dot org. Or you can call us at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. We are strong. We are resilient. And we will get through this together. But these are stressful times, and it's important to also practice good self-care. It's normal to feel overwhelmed, anxious, or afraid. But there is hope. Reach out to someone. Connect with your friends. Stay in touch with your community. And know that you are not alone. Learn more at wearebroadcasters.com slash hope. Furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. When Jim died, I wondered if I would be able to keep the farm. 
Then I heard about the USDA's loan program for socially disadvantaged farmers and ranchers. It's for women and minorities who may be having trouble getting credit. Once I was approved, the USDA's Farm Service Agency helped me get the credit I needed. Now I don't have to sell, and I can pass the farm down to my kids the way Jim's dad passed it down to him. I know he'd like that. Contact your local USDA Service Center or visit www.fsa.usda.gov. Social Security is with you through life's journey from birth to retirement. As your life changes year to year, so do your needs. For over 80 years, Social Security has helped to meet your needs and is committed to improving access to the services that make a difference in your life. Today, you can verify your earnings, estimate your future benefits, apply for retirement, manage your benefits, and even change your address all from the comfort of your home. Social Security's online services help put you in control with secure access to your information anytime, anywhere, allowing you to spend more time with family, friends, or simply just enjoying the day. Social Security, securing today and tomorrow. See what you can do online at socialsecurity.gov. Produced at U.S. taxpayer expense. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. My guest Ingrid Slickers. Ingrid is the director of the Trauma Education Center at Andrews University. If you're not familiar with Andrews, it's in the southwestern corner of the state of Michigan, and they are making a significant impact throughout the world. You heard about some of Ingrid's work in Thailand. Ingrid, we want to talk, though, about some of your work closer to home. You've had the privilege of working with First Nation populations here in the U.S. Uh, I know you have a story that we were speaking about off-air that really had a significant influence on you and your work. Tell us a little bit about that. It's an honor to talk about being in Arizona and meeting with First Nations people as we talked about uh, the brain and trauma. And as we did some talking, coming to the understanding where many times as individuals, we are shamed for our decisions Many times, uh, you know, there's a struggle of why, why can't I just seem to get it together? And it's something that, that we all feel. And being able to talk about how our childhood experiences and what trauma has done to our brains and shifting the focus of, you know, what's wrong with me or what's wrong with him or what's wrong with her to what's happened to me, what's happened to us. And being able to take a step back and then being able to see that many of the actions that we have taken have been simply just survival. Hmm. There's that saying, hurting people hurt people. Is that true or is that an oversimplification? It's true. And I don't think we should oversimplify it. Uh, But something that we say in our trauma work is to name it is to tame it. So if we can name what has happened to us, then we can start working to tame that. Um, And part of that is that fear of shame. And that's why we just don't want to talk about it. 
You know, Ingrid, there's another discussion that I often hear, at least from my vantage point, and it has to do with this dynamic of blaming victims. From my vantage point, you can tell me whether there's some truth in this or you think this is just a, a skewed perspective. It seems to me that people, at least in my experience, tend to blame people who are victimized because it's a way of protecting themselves. They want to think it's an orderly world, that drunk drivers just don't go over the yellow line and hit people, and people just aren't you know, the victims of violent crime unless they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. And so if I can blame the victim, I could say, well, I wouldn't have done that, or I would be more watchful if someone was weaving as they were coming to me. I wouldn't have let them hit me, or I wouldn't have gone in this place, or et cetera, et cetera. Do you see what I'm asking? Do we have this um, danger of blaming people, and does that then make it harder for us to protect our communities? Does it make it harder for people to get help? Uh, Give me some insights into what I'm sharing. Yes and yes. I think the blame comes in because we want to make sense of things and things don't make sense. Mm. And so again, when we were uh, in Arizona and we had to hear hard stories or other places that we've been and we hear these hard stories, it's to try to make sense. And so we blame sometimes the victim or we blame somebody else. And then there's more shame. And then there's more shame. And then we can't create these safe communities that say we've got to stop blaming and trying to make sense of it and move towards healing. And what does that look like? And that's one of the things that we talked about when we were in Chimley. We talked about healing can only happen in a safe community in a safe space. And those words are used a lot now, Mm -hmm. but what does that look like? And pausing and talking about that. Yeah, we definitely want to move into that discussion, Ingrid, but before we do, I mean, just as we're talking together and I think of my work with indigenous populations, some of our listeners heard a series of shows we did with native Hawaiians a while back. And uh, it was striking to me. I mean, it might be obvious to most of my listeners, but Sometimes we don't think about this, but when we talk about indigenous populations, whether we're talking about here in North America, whether we're talking about Pacific Islanders, Native Hawaiians, whatever, Native Alaskans, uh, it's, it's the dynamic that not only when you're victimized to share that are you reflecting on your own experience, but it's speaking about a community that you identify with. Oftentimes, other segments of the population, they don't have the emotional connection with the community that someone living on a reservation or in a close-knit, extended family-type environment as an indigenous population would have. And so it's almost like, if I share this, I'm shaming my whole community, even though I've been hurt, even though I've been traumatized. So is that something that you saw come out of those dialogues that you had when you were in the Southwest? Very much so. And one of the things that we also talked about is that we now see communities that are traumatized. We see intergenerational trauma in the study of epigenetics, right? Where yes and yes, and we need to acknowledge that. But then that's where healing is going to come from simply by having these conversations. And going back to what you said a minute ago, When there's so much pain, people try to survive and to ease the pain. And so that's where 
we self-medicate and we self-medicate using all kinds of different things. For some of us, it's even work, overworking. It could be overspending. It could be substances. And sometimes we don't look at each other with compassion. And, and you know, I could say, well, look, my dad's drunk all the time or my uncle. Um, I get that he had pain. We also need to remember, nobody says, I'm going to grow up. Hmm. And I'm going to be, I'm going to drink all the time. That isn't anybody's desire. And so we've got to look at each other with compassion. So when we talk about our communities coming together, first and foremost, we've got to change the way we look at each other, even within the communities. Now, Ingrid, a lot of folks who are tuning in, I mean, they come from larger tribes. I mean, they may have you know, great infrastructure. They may have great access to care. If they're especially in a smaller geographic area, they may have a great tribal health center or a number of them for a larger tribe. And they feel that a lot of these issues are being addressed. They've actually seen uh, social workers. They've got people who are active in their communities. But we have so many of our Native Americans and other listeners who are not Native. They're widely disseminated throughout the country and even abroad. They're listening to some of this and they're saying, well, yeah, I mean, you're talking about healing communities, but but what can I do? I've been traumatized. There's problems in my community. For the individual, or if we want to speak in a broader context, for people that may be tuning in, maybe they're a tribal chairperson, they say, we don't have some of this going on. What kind of issues should we be focused on if we want to have a mindset of healing? So when we talk about being trauma-informed, we talk about three pillars of trauma-informed care that holds it all together. So let's let's say, and this will apply to us as individuals. It will also apply to us as communities. So three pillars. One, um, safe environment. So making sure that, you know, we're creating safety. So are we in a safe environment? Is our family in a safe environment? Are our communities safe? Uh, and that's also felt safety because sometimes we say, oh yeah, you know, we've got fire extinguishers. Okay, fine. But, you know, are, are people feeling safe? So that's mm-hmm. one. The second one is emotional recognition and regulation. Hmm. So are we teaching how to recognize emotions? Are we teaching our kids? What do emotions feel like? What do they look like? And how do we regulate those emotions? And are we doing that for ourselves? Are we able to identify, you know, right now I feel really angry. What am I going to do about that? Or right now I feel really sad or really worried. So emotional recognition and regulation. And then the third pillar is relationship and connectedness. And that one is key. Even the world's leading traumatologists say, healing cannot happen unless you're in relationship. The Hmm. number one key to mental health is to be in relationship. So what does that look like, right? What if I'm not in relationship? I may need to seek out a couple of people that are trusted and be intentional about that relationship. And again, sometimes we talk about eye contact. So I remember being out on the reservation and we did this whole discussion on the importance of eye contact. And we had a good time doing staring contests and um, families coming back and saying, we went home and said to our kids, put your phone down. Let's look at each other. There's so much impact with the eye contact. So something as simple as looking at each other in the eyes. 
Wow. This is tremendous stuff, Ingrid. I'm talking with Ingrid Slickers. She's uh, the director of the Trauma Education Center at Andrews University. If someone wants to reach out to you, Ingrid, before we step away and they say, boy, I want to hear the whole show, but I'm at my destination, uh, how can someone get a hold of you or your team? They can look up Andrews University um, and just type in Trauma Center, but our email is also traumacare at andrews.edu, and feel free to shoot us an email. We can share resources or have a conversation via email. Um, because our goal is to support each other, right? We are all in this together. Great. So I've got it, traumacare at andrews.edu. Correct. We've got to step away. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We've got more coming up in today's show. Ingrid Slickers is staying by. Please do the same. More right after this. American Indian and Alaska Native Living will continue in a moment. If you have questions or comments about today's pre-recorded broadcast, please contact us on the web at AIANL.org or call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. A message from the National Police Association. It used to be that any able-bodied person would offer to assist a police officer in danger. Now, passers-by are more likely to take a video. There's a better use for your phone when an officer's in trouble. Call 911. Tell the operator where you are and what you see. Then, start your video to provide evidence later. To learn more about how you can assist law enforcement, visit nationalpolice.org. That's nationalpolice.org. Unlike other health concerns, mental illness is not always easy to see. Depression won't show up on an eye chart, and you can't measure it on your bathroom scale. Sorting out a mental health concern is not something to attempt on your own. You won't find a bipolar disorder by looking at a thermometer. Like many other health conditions, help for mental illness takes professional diagnosis and treatment. Anxiety won't just go away under a stick-on bandage. So the sooner you seek treatment, the better. If you or a loved one has a mental health concern, don't go it alone. Find out what to do. For 24-hour free and confidential information and treatment referral, call 1-800-662-HELP. Learn more at samhsa.gov support. That's samhsa.gov support. Using meth taught me everything about freedom, only not like you think. It taught me how easy it is to lose your freedom. If you think meth is taking control of you, ask for help. You have the power to be truly free. I know. I'm Jan, and I'm free from meth. If you or someone you know is struggling with meth, call 1-800-662-HELP for 24-hour free and confidential treatment referral. Learn more at samhsa.gov meth. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. You are back with Dr. David DeRose for the second half of today's broadcast. We're speaking with Ingrid Slickers. Ingrid heads up the Trauma Education Center at Andrews University. 
And you perhaps have heard me mention that connection already several times on today's show. And maybe you're even like me, wondering what a trauma education center even looks like. Ingrid, if I've been in a trauma education center, I don't consciously recall saying, oh, wow, here I'm at a trauma education center. I mean, what does this look like? What do you do? What would uh, someone find and who might want to check your program out? Good question. We've had that too, uh, where people have said, what is the trauma ed center? Because there's a difference, David, between a trauma center and a trauma ed center. So, um, and we're talking now about emotional and psychological trauma, you know, because many times we talk about a trauma center at a hospital, right? Mm -hmm. That sort of physical trauma. There's trauma centers around our country that have to do with doing assessments on individuals who have trauma. But our center at Andrews is a trauma education center where our goal is to spread the message literally around the world about what trauma is, how it impacts us, and then what are some things that we can do ourselves aside from going to counseling and and et cetera that are practical tools because it takes a community to heal together. And that is our goal here at the Trauma Education Center. We provide trainings and consultations and just share what we're learning, what society is learning, what science is learning. And then we love, love, love uh, the intersection of then faith as well into that. Now, if we're able to release some bonus video content with this show, sometimes we're able to pull that off, Ingrid. People would see in the background that you've got some intriguing objects. And uh, I inquired over the break what some of those things were. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your office and why someone who's interested in trauma would have some things that you wouldn't find, at least in a typical medical office. I've never had some of these articles. Tell us a little bit about uh, some of the decor. So some of the things that I have in my office are things that we use with individuals, especially with children, but let's not limit things to children, right? Because we always go back to, we all have brains, right? So what's good for kids is good for adults too. Um, We've got some fidget toys. We've got some fidget spinners. So when we talk about brain health, we talk about sometimes our fingers need things to be fidgeting with, especially if we're going to talk about hard stuff. Hmm. Because the body stores that trauma and it comes up. And so sometimes when we talk about where's your body at, what's your body feeling, we're able to identify it that way. So I've got fidget things, I've got fidget tools. And something that we enjoy doing is what we call brain breaks. David, do you know what brain breaks are? No, you better tell me about brain breaks. So brain breaks are something that are supposed to happen every 20 minutes. Hmm especially if you've been focusing. And basically what we want to do is to get the left and the right hemisphere of the brain talking to each other again. So basically it's cross lateral stimulation. We want to be able to cross our bodies. So Hmm. something that we do with students at Andrews, with anybody that we talk to is we teach how to do a brain break so people can implement it. So it could be David as easy as I tap an opposite shoulder with an opposite hand every 20 minutes to help me refocus. And we have all kinds of activities. So you email us, but you can Google brain breaks. Um, 
many of them are simply hysterical, such as putting your finger on your nose and your other hand on the opposite ear and then flipping it back around. But what you're, you're doing during those moments is a couple of things, David. One, you are doing the cross-lateral stimulation, but you're also creating relationship. And so we do this. We encourage families to do it. We encourage professionals to do it. David, I've gotten the board of trustees at Andrews University to do it with me, right? Because if we've got to do some heavy thinking, we need that, that brain to be fully online. And especially because we're all struggling with so many things. Sometimes it's hard to focus. Now, I am really interested in this, Ingrid. Are you telling me that people have actually studied doing these brain breaks, touching my right shoulder with my left hand and vice versa, and then they've measured performance in some way after these brain breaks and before? They've really gone that far? Yes, it's fascinating. You can spend some time looking at that, and especially with kids at school, but for adults too. Now, remember, we are talking about our pillars, right? Our pillars of trauma-informed care is to recognize where our emotions are at. And so at times by doing these brain breaks, we're able to pause and acknowledge, hey, where am I at? Do I need a break? Do I need a drink of water? To be at my utmost performance, not just in my brain, but in my mind. And so part of the healing of trauma is being able to be aware of what's going on with us. Well, now I'm trying to apply this in my own work. Most of what I do right now, you and I have talked about this, is telemedicine as far as my clinical work. So I can't necessarily see a person. I mean, a lot of what we do is actually just phone-based because I'm, I'm working with an underserved population in an area that doesn't have a lot of bandwidth as far as the uh, Internet service providers so or the phone companies, what it usually is. So I'm just thinking, if I'm talking with someone about a difficult subject— do you think it would be worth saying, hey, why don't you pick up a pencil or something you put in your hands while we're talking about this? I mean, that seems kind of artificial, but is that the kind of messaging that you'd give to a child who's in your office? Would you hand them something as you're talking about something difficult? How does that actually work in the clinical setting? So first and foremost, I'd check in and I'd say, okay, we're going to talk about some hard stuff. Uh, tell me where you're at. Where's your body at right now before we go into talking about this hard stuff and just naming it. So that's part of naming it. And yeah, sometimes I say, do you need to just stand up and stretch for a minute and then sit back down? Let's do that because we got to get the blood flowing, right? Hmm. You know, we, we talk about what does anxiety feel like? And they'll say, well, I feel it in my stomach or my chest feels tight. So for some people, I'll say, okay, let's take some breaths together. Um, because again, we know that intentional breathing can help move us into that parasympathetic nervous system. So we breathe together. Uh, I'll teach you a breathing thing we do, David, with kids. And I love it with adults. We call it pizza breathing, right? We're going to smell the pizza in through our nose. But the pizza's too hot. So we have to blow out through our mouth, remembering that the longer out breath is important. And so sometimes, you know, we'll just say, hey, let's take some, let's do some pizza breathing together. And then we'll start talking, right? Where we've got to acknowledge what's going on in the body. Good. I appreciate these practical insights. I mean, these are things that we can use in any setting. We don't have to be in with a clinician. We can be dealing with a maybe a more tense thing in a relationship. It might be at a tribal council meeting. It might be 
in our own home around the the table, right? And so doing something like deep breathing, and it may seem a little bit strange if I'm touching my nose with one hand and the opposite ear with the other hand, right? That might not go over that well in a discussion with someone. It might look kind of funny, but I'm just giving you some ideas of things. Like if you've got small kids in your house, it's a great fun activity to do. But yes, deep breathing. Part of the reason, David, we say pizza breathing, it's fun to do it with kids. But what I've had adults say it's helped them is because it triggers them to think about, oh, pizza. Like I can imagine something versus just deep breathing. Uh-huh. I had a woman once who uh, needed to go in front of the judge. She was working on getting her kids back because um, sadly they had been removed and she had worked very hard. Uh, but would get so nervous when it was time to be in front of the judge. So we we worked on pizza breathing, and she said, Ingrid, I sat down in front of that judge, and I imagined my pizza. She said, and I did my pizza breathing, and it calmed my body enough so I could think clearly and speak clearly. So mm. we know it works. We know it works. Good, good. I mean, these are these are practical things, and I really appreciate it, because so many times we can talk about the theory but if we don't have it illustrated, if we don't have some of these tools, uh, we're really crippled in many respects as far as accomplishing as much as we could. How about some other simple techniques? Do any other things come to mind that might be helpful to my listeners? Well, we already talked about singing, David. So let's mm-hmm. remind listeners about singing. Uh, you know, I say to students on their way into school uh, to sing loudly, like if they know they're going to have an exam coming because they're going to get their body activated appropriately so that they can think clearly, right? So we do that. We talk about deep breathing. We already said that. Exercise is excellent. Hmm. But if you're in a situation where you can't necessarily exercise, let's say you're sitting in a chair, um, we do what we call chair push-ups. So maybe, David, you can help me describe it, too, since, you know, we're just for our listeners, you're literally using your hands to, you know, do a push up and raise your body Okay. up on your hands. And so if I'm feeling stressed and nervous and anxious about a situation, that's one that I can use right in that moment. There you go. I see you doing it, David. So just pushing up on your hands and back down. So taking that weight off your seat and putting it onto your arms, uh, maybe not fully. You're not necessarily a, a gymnast that can support your whole weight, right? I'm not asking about you personally, but I'm speaking to my listeners. Right. And the reason I'm sharing some of these is because many times we get immobilized. And we started this discussion talking about trauma and trauma's impact on the brain. But that's what it is. Our trauma triggers come up in our bodies especially when we're in stressful situations and we need to find a way to calm ourselves down so that we can respond appropriately and not continue to be the hurt people who now are hurting people, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's each of ours goal and how do we support each other with that? So I can envision, Ingrid, a lot of people going to trauma care at andrews.edu or sending an email, I guess that would be more appropriate, traumacare at andrews.edu, connecting with you or other members of your team, or maybe going to the andrews.edu domain, to the homepage for the university, putting in trauma center or trauma care, 
coming to your center. What would someone expect to find there on the website, or what kind of resources might you have to offer if someone from a, a tribal health department or a, someone who's listening, they might be a, a community health worker, and they say, boy, some of these things would be useful as I work in homes with, with, with my uh, clients and my community. Give me an idea of what we could find there. So the website is getting updated. Um, so our goal is the website is going to be divided into some sections. So if you're, you know, a services worker, or for example, if you're a pastor, or you're an educator, we're going to divide up the resources. So if you're an educator, how do you apply some of these techniques in your classroom, for example? Um, and then, you know, obviously just the general public as in our families. Um, so resources will be divided that way. We also provide trainings. This is great. And I know there'll be a lot more available when that website is fully updated. But in the meantime, just remember simply trauma care at andrews.edu. You can connect with Ingrid or others on her team. We've got some other great stuff coming up in this program, though. It's coming up in our final segment. We do have to step away just briefly, but we will be back. Stay tuned. Ingrid Slickers and Dr. DeRose will be back right after this. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. If a natural disaster comes knocking, how prepared is your family? You can't just close the door on earthquakes, floods, or hurricanes and hope they go away. That's why it's important to make a plan now. Ready.gov slash plan has the tools and tips you need to prepare your family for an emergency. So if disaster shows up at your doorstep, you'll be ready. Visit ready.gov slash plan and make a plan today. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. I'm just texting him back. I'm just posting a story. I'm just changing the song. I'm just... No. When it comes to distracted driving, just don't. Sending a text takes your eyes off the road for just five seconds, but in that time, your car can travel the length of an entire football field. Any distracted driving just isn't worth it. Visit StopTextsStopRex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. What is a number story? My number story started with fear and a lack of support, and it has led me to be there for others. A number story begins in our childhood with ACEs, Adverse Childhood Experiences. My number story begins with the separation from my father and the emotional abandonment from my mother and leads to me being a role model to not only myself, but those around me by becoming the person that wasn't there for me. ACEs are so common, two-thirds of us have one. My number story begins with drug abuse and homelessness and leads to realizing that I can live life by my own standards. A study found the more ACEs, the more likely we may experience a host of serious health effects, physical and mental, but that doesn't need to be the case. Your ACE number is simply an entry point to your own story. Where it leads is up to you. My number story begins with years of emotional abuse and leads to peace, clarity, and security in my self-worth. Take control of where your number story leads at numberstory.org. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaska Native Living. 
Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to the final segment of today's edition of American Indian and Alaska Native Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We've been speaking about trauma. It is something that none of us escape in our human experience. It is something that we're hearing a lot more about. But fortunately, we're gaining insights into how we can, well, mitigate many of the effects of trauma, things that can help us grow in the midst of those uh, challenges that come at us. Ingrid Slickers is one of the researchers and clinicians who's been helping people do just that, and she's been helping us understand this whole field even better. Ingrid, as you and I were speaking during the break, uh, we were talking about something that has just exploded over the last, I mean, at least from my vantage point, last decade or so, this uh, whole you know, so-called positive psychology movement. Tell us a little bit about uh, some of the energy that's going into, instead of just talking about the trauma, the difficulties, the challenges, uh, the focus on gratitude and the healing power in that whole discipline. That part is so exciting to me because we are looking at neuroplasticity. So what that means when we talk about the brain, we talked about trauma's impact on the brain and how we want that brain to heal. Uh, It's beautiful to be able to see that the brain can heal. We can heal. And that's that conversation about neuroplasticity. And so some of the studies are telling us that the sheer fact of being grateful helps with that neuroplasticity. And isn't that fascinating? Because it, mm-hmm. I don't have to go to my therapist's office. It's something that I can do. And what's interesting, the researchers have even noted the sheer act of trying to think of something. So sometimes people say, Ingrid, I have nothing to be grateful for. And I'll say, keep trying to think of something. Because science even tells us that, that helps your neuroplasticity. This is really so interesting. And maybe you can help me with this, because I've read enough about this topic just to be dangerous and you know you'll be skimming articles or looking at things and it seems like i and maybe you haven't come across this but it seemed like some of the research was looking at the frequency at which someone might keep a gratitude journal for example and i may have been misreading this but it almost seemed like there was some indication that people that had this concentrated discipline of cultivating gratitude, keeping a gratitude journal, there was, from something I was looking at, they even got more benefit if they did it once a week than if they did it every day. Now, is this something that I've just uh, misunderstood? Have you heard anything about this uh, this attitude and you know, frequency? Oh, good. Wonderful. I was hoping you could help me. So this is what we recommend. This is the research that we're we're leaning on. Um, what we have seen is uh, the recommendation is three things a day, minimum, mm. okay. three things a day. So I understand the once a week actually journaling, but the recommendation is, are you pausing to at least be grateful for three things that day? Okay. And as spiritual people, we love to go back to the story of Daniel in the Bible Um, and we always talk about, he prayed three times a day. Mm. Well, if you read scripture, it said he prayed with Thanksgiving. So that's what Daniel was doing. So, Hey, why not? Right. Science is showing us three things a day is the recommendation. So even if you think of three things, like before bed, 
what are three things I'm grateful for today. Good, good, good. And that really can help us uh, get out of that cycle where we're just thinking things are getting worse and worse. And uh, I just really appreciate that uh, that practical advice. And if someone you said, Ingrid, can't even think of one thing, keep trying. Keep trying. That's good for your brain, too. Now, now how about this one? And, and you tell me, I've heard different things about this. You know, some people say, well, it's not good when it comes to gratitude to compare yourself with other people. But I've heard other people say, well, if you can think of nothing else, aren't you grateful that you could still walk or that you're, you haven't had your legs amputated? Or And some people would say, well, that's silly or that's uh, making me feel better at someone else's expense. How about that whole comparison uh, topic? Is that somewhat tenuous as far as whether that's something to be grateful about or not? I think, I think if we are just simply grateful without comparing it, mm-hmm. right? So I can just name it. Right. For me, I can name the fact that um, I'm not paralyzed. So I'm just naming it for me. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that that's the key. So being careful not to do it in comparison, just name it for yourself. You know, if you're laying in a bed at night before you sleep, be grateful you're laying in a bed. Well, I'm going to ask you to help me with one of my patients. Of course, I'm not going to disclose any of the details, but I was just speaking with someone Uh, during a telemedicine visit this week, and they were talking about panic attacks. Of course, we have medications that we can use in those contexts. And of course, there's mental health professionals. I'm an internal medicine specialist. We do deal with a lot of mental health issues because that's part of primary care. But, um, you know, you got me thinking, are there some simple techniques in addition to the counseling, in addition to the medication therapies that might be helpful, maybe for a listener right now, they're dealing with panic attacks. Anything that can help to uh, nip it in the bud when they start realizing things are getting out of control? Yes. Thank you for asking that because we are a traumatized society and our bodies start to act up first. So we tell people when you start to sense something is coming, for some reason, media or somebody has said it, we should breathe into a paper bag, but that's actually going to make it worse. So please don't breathe Mm. into a paper bag. We do a real practical thing. We just uh, basically use our fingers, five, four, three, two, one, right? So you use your hand, five, four, three, two, one, because hopefully, you know, you've got that present. And it's up to you, the order, but you're basically going to go through your senses. So remember, we were talking about healing comes through the Mm. senses. So Mm -hmm. maybe I'm going to choose five things I see and I need to name them, right? So right now, David, I see you. I see the screen. I see a plant and I name them five Mm -hmm. things. I see four things. Maybe I hear it could be four things. I smell three things. I feel and feel meaning I'm patting. That's what you heard. I'm patting my chair. I'm Mm -hmm. patting, you know, the table I'm at. Uh, So again, five, we're doing our senses, five, four, three, two, one, things that I see, things that I hear, things that I smell, things that I feel possibly things that I taste. Hmm. If you're able to have access to a mint, we encourage mint or we encourage gum. So for Hmm. people who tend to have panic attacks, a lot of times we encourage them to have mint or gum. And then we always ask people, if you can get through those, think of something that you're grateful for. Hmm. 
So it sounds like a lot of it may have to do with kind of distracting the brain, engaging the brain in something else other than going down this uh, panic, uh, you know, deep hole, if you will. Correct. We want to get outside ourselves, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So you described it instead of going down the hole, we want to get outside. And that's why we're looking at things on the outside of us. Keep the eyes open because many times we want to close our eyes, keep them open. One of the things that we've touched on several times in the course of the interview, and I know our, our time is, is rapidly slipping away, so maybe just a few thoughts on this, but this whole idea of social connectedness, uh, social support, contrast to social isolation, why is that so important in this whole uh, dialogue? Human connection is what makes us human, and we're all human. And we have to have connection. We were created for connection. And even if you're not a believer, science shows us we must have connection. We can study, you know, moms and babies and how babies need to be touched and looked at in the eye. That goes for adults too. So we talked about eye contact, human connection. Stressful situations causes our cortisol to raise, to rise in our bodies. And we know that's the stress hormone, and that's not always bad. But in our field, we're doing a lot of talking about cortisol flooding. You know, it's much like rain a little bit. Normal rain is good, but too much and it's flooding. It's too much. Mm-hmm. And so we want to create ways to reduce cortisol levels for our own health and well-being. And we talked about some ways that we do that. But part of the way that we reduce our cortisol levels is being with humans simply being in relationship. It's even, we don't even have to say anything. We can just agree to simply be. Presence is key. Mm. Ingrid, you've given us so many practical insights. I know you and your team have so many more things that you bring to this dialogue. Again, if someone wants to reach out and connect with you or your team, how do they do that? Have them email us. They can look us up on the website, but send us a quick email, trauma care at andrews.edu, and we will respond. Thank you so much, Ingrid. As we close out the show, any final messages of encouragement for our listeners? Always hope. Please keep hope because there is healing. There is healing. So while you have breath, hang on to hope and hang on to each other. Thank you so much. Ingrid Slickers, she is the director of the Trauma Care Uh, facility, the Trauma Education Center there at Andrews University. Thank you, Ingrid, and thank you, everyone, for joining us on today's edition of American Indian and Alaska Native Living. As always, I'm Dr. David DeRose, wishing you the very best of health. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.